This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Future of Cybercrime podcast. So far on this podcast, we've had the opportunity to speak to our guests about different aspects of cyber threat intelligence. However, not yet about processes composing cyber investigations. So for that reason, today we have a very special guest, Matt Swenson. Matt currently serves as a Senior Vice President for Investigations at IR Inc., In his role as SVP, Matt leads a team of investigators responsible for responding to cyber incidences and also conducting data breach investigations and analysis. Prior to his role as SVP, Matt served as the division chief at the Homeland Security Investigations Cybercrime Center, C3. At C3, he oversaw all daily operations for all cybercrime investigations, digital forensics as well and even oversaw cyber threat intelligence and IT support. So we have a wealth of experience on the call today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for chatting with me today here, Matt. Hi, Zara. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I've shared with our guests some bit about you already here, but it's always better coming from the source. So if you don't mind, can you just share a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure, absolutely. So I recently retired from Homeland Security Investigations. I did uh, 20 years there. The vast majority of my career was focused on digital forensics and cybercrime investigations. So I actually started out as a digital forensic analyst back in 2004. And then, um, you know, I kind of rose up the ranks through the agency. And toward the end, I was serving as the division chief where I oversaw cyber division. So all things digital forensics, incident response, cyber threat intelligence, and cyber investigations kind of all fell under me. And then since retirement, I've been serving as the senior vice president for investigations at IR Inc. So incident response and a data breach company, where um, we're kind of like the cleanup crew in the cyber world. So we come in post breach and help companies get you know, business continuity back so that, you know, figure out how they got breached, what happened, you know, what needs to be mitigated or remediated to help them get back up to speed. All right. That's a wealth of experience across the spectrum. We have digital forensics at the onset. So you started with the breaking into the career route and then worked your way all the way up to the point now where you're telling organizations how they can manage at, uh, I guess, when attacked and how to continue moving forward throughout this experience. What would you say, I got a really important one first, is the definition of cybercrime, one, and then two, a little bit of a different question, applying that same definition, how do investigations work? So I, I think cybercrimes is very complex as a definition, right? Absolutely. So kind of the way that that we define it at Homeland Security, and I think it's pretty consistent through, you know, FBI, Secret Service and the the larger agencies that are working cybercrime investigations is that, you know, we kind of break it into two buckets, one being what we call cyber dependent investigations, and then the other being cyber enabled. So the way that we kind of 
think of things is that a cyber dependent crime would be something where the actual the criminal statute that's being charged is a computer offense. So I think the perfect example of that is a network intrusion investigation or probably the most straightforward example to where they're being charged under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The actual statute is 18 U.S.C. 1030 or unauthorized access to a computer network or system. And so, you know, you think of a hacking case, a hacker obtains authorization or hacks into a network that he doesn't or he or she doesn't, you know, otherwise have authorization to be in. They're not legally allowed to be into somebody's network and they obtain access and they go inside the network and do whatever, they would actually be charged with a computer specific offense. And so all things like, you know, network intrusion, malware, botnets, all kind of fall into into that category. And then we also look at what we call cyber enabled, where, you know, cyber technology plays a huge portion in the commission of a crime but it may not be what is actually criminally being charged. So an example of that may be a vendor on a dark web marketplace or somebody selling credentials on, you know, the cyber underground on a a hacking forum or selling network access. In the case of a vendor on a dark web market, they may be selling a wide variety of illicit goods and services. So maybe they're selling narcotics or services, murder for hire or human trafficking or, or stuff like that. Cyber plays a huge role and the technology plays a huge role in helping them commit that crime. But the underlying statute may just be narcotic distribution of what they're ultimately charged in. So that's kind of how we look at things. And it's kind of ever evolving. So, you know, particularly on the cyber enabled side, we're seeing with the growth and the adoption of technology and just it becoming more commonplace in in everybody's, you know, daily routines that it's becoming a larger part of the commission of traditional types of crime. So an example of that is when I started in the early 2000s, you know, most narcotics transactions were street level transactions on the on a street corner, right? Where you would drive up, you would exchange cash for narcotics. Mm-hmm. Now, a good portion of that has actually transitioned online. So it may be on a dark web marketplace where somebody doesn't have to go into a shady neighborhood to buy opioids or fentanyl or whatever. They can actually just go download a specific, you know, browser, Tor browser, get on a dark web, get on a dark web marketplace. And actually that whole transaction takes place online and whatever they're buying is actually sent directly to their house. So would you say that there are many intersections between cyber enabled and cyber dependent crimes? Or would you say that they still, because they're categorized into two different buckets, that they primarily sit in their separate buckets? You know, I would say that they're intersecting more and more. And, you know, criminals are interacting with each other on forums and one on one a lot more than they used to, where, you know, back in the day, probably 10, 15 years or so or more ago, that wasn't as commonplace. But I think that the intersection between cyber enabled and cyber dependent is becoming more and more commonplace and probably will be more so in the future. It's just technology kind of flattens everything out in the world and information is just so easily and readily exchanged that, you know, I think people in general, it's easier for them to kind of touch base and and talk to one another. Yeah, seems like it. 
So how about those investigations for cyber-enabled versus cyber-dependent crimes? They obviously look somewhat technically different or probably have different stakeholders throughout. But I'm wondering, beyond my assumptions, how did they go? So, yeah, they do. And we actually, when I was with Homeland Security Investigations, we actually split them into separate sections because there's kind of different nuances to them. So you have to focus and kind of know who the adversary is and kind of what their tactics, techniques and procedures or TTPs are. And so, you know, we would have what we call digital crimes, which was our cyber enabled section. And they would focus very heavily on specifically on dark web marketplaces and cryptocurrency specifically. And then we had our network intrusion section, which was focused very heavily on cyber dependent, working a lot of hacking cases. That was kind of their bread and butter. And you really do have to be specialized and understand, you know, what the adversary is doing. And it's very hard in today's world to be kind of a jack of all trades. So usually now our investigators tend to get very specialized, much like the cyber criminals. You know, you see it in ransomware groups now. You know, the days of hackers being kind of doing a bunch of different things is very rare. Usually people tend to be much more specialized. And that's true for investigations as well. Sounds logical. What I was thinking when I asked that question was that in cyber dependent crimes, and I'm actually still thinking it, you require a good number of technical people that also are pretty apt in behavioral intelligence. So the social engineering aspect of cyber dependent crimes is pretty huge. Not, you know, always focused upon that well in the cybersecurity realm, but definitely is big. And cyber enabled crimes is all about that. It's really bringing the human into the technical world and then driving it deeper underground. So the cybercrime underground makes sense in that respect. There has to be that overlap. I wonder in all of your investigations, have you noted specific threat actors that played on both ends? Very good points. And yes, if you think of social engineering, so you're right, like the hackers, they're usually adept at, you know, social engineering. You think of phishing as probably the most common attack vector that we see kind of across the board. But on the cyber enabled side, particularly cyber fraud, they are the absolute masters of social engineering. And we saw that the COVID-19 pandemic was the perfect example of that, of just how much rampant cyber fraud we saw just overnight. And whatever was coming out in the media, there was a fraud scheme that kind of took advantage of that. So whether it's starting with you know the shortage of PPE supplies, there were fraudulent schemes around that. And then now the vaccines are coming. We saw a host of fraud related to vaccines. So kind of whatever is at the forefront of the media, they're able to take that and find some sort of social engineering mechanism to be able to prey upon people and ultimately monetize that. And there's there's certain criminal groups that are better at that. So you think of a lot of like, you know, Nigerian romance scams and BEC and stuff like that, they're very good at the social engineering aspect. And then you look at kind of Russian, you know, hacking and carding and whatnot. They tend to be not as focused on social engineering and kind of the 
the running thing that we would always joke about or not not joke about, but discuss is that, hey, if like the Russians and the Nigerians ever got together and blended their skill sets into one, it would be like the perfect, you know, cyber criminal entity. So hopefully we don't ever see that. But maybe um, or maybe yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we're limited by what we know. Right. So, yeah, definitely. It definitely plays a, a huge aspect, both on the cyber enabled and cyber dependent criminal aspect. Mm, OK, well, then investigations going forward might be more blurred. Now you're on the other side at IR Inc. You've transitioned into a role that helps organizations deal with the aftermath. How has that been? It's been good. You know, I joke that you know, being in the government for over 20 years, you kind of get institutionalized into the way that that government works. And it's very slow and it's very bureaucratic. And now I'm at a incident response startup, which is kind of the opposite of that. It's very fast. It's very dynamic. And, you know, being a startup in general is, you know, very fast paced. You kind of have to roll up your sleeves and do whatever it takes because, um, you know, you're, you're usually small and, and nimble. So, it's been a bit of a transition, but I enjoy it. I enjoy building stuff from the ground up. So, you know, when I got to the Cybercrime Center, I actually created the network intrusion section from the ground up. So it's a lot of fun to kind of have a vision of what you want to build and then go out and build it. And then hopefully see the success at the end of the road when, when everything gets built out and you know you're able to generate a product at, at the end of everything to see how far you've come it's super thrilling super thrilling also when you have that amount of experience that you have and you can bring that toolkit to bear in a startup it's only going to be successful one way or the other however you define success it will be i wonder now that you have private industry experience, you're here now, you've had significant public industry experience. What are some strengths and weaknesses on both ends? So I would say that on the government side, particularly law enforcement, they have a lot of authority of which to operate with that you don't have on the private sector, which gives you a lot of options when investigating cybercrime. You know, you are able to operate in an undercover capacity, you're able to do things like go up on data intercepts and wiretaps and, you know, how you have search warrants, subpoena authority. And so that is very advantageous. At the same time, it's very niche. So, you know, law enforcement has a very unique role in combating cybercrime in that you are very concerned with attribution. At the end of the day, attribution is everything. So it's not enough to know, hey, this is, you know, advanced persistent threat group number, you know, whatever fancy bear, and they attacked, and we're good with that level of attribution. Like, we're pretty sure, we're pretty confident it comes back to this APT group. And at the end of the day, like, we're comfortable with that. That doesn't work with law enforcement. You have to know down to the actual human being, you know, hey, this is, you know, Sergei Sergeyevich, and he lives in St. Petersburg, and this is his date of birth, and this is who he is real life identity is, because ultimately, you're working a criminal case against individuals, and you have to indict individuals and real life personas. So 
there's not really anybody else going to that level of detail for attribution. And it's extremely difficult. I've said for the longest time in investigations in law enforcement, working cyber against, you know, fake personas of people who you're not ever 100% confident who it is, is the most difficult thing to do in all of law enforcement. And on the private side, you know, usually you're serving a customer and you're ultimately looking to have customer satisfaction and make sure that, you know, they're happy. And you usually don't have to get that granular. You're not worried about issues like discovery. Will all this stuff see the light of day? And it's much more dynamic. It's much more fast paced moving. There's not nearly as much red tape and bureaucracy. So it's kind of a a double-edged sword, you know, working for the government. Very strong points made on the attribution part. That really sticks out to me. So in private industry, there isn't so much incentive to get down to the person. And really, that is the root of the problem. You know, if you get there, then ideally, you will learn more about a group and stop some more prominent threat actors. But private industry is not incentivized to get there. Not even if they incur massive losses. When is a private organization incentivized to get there? Yeah, I don't think that they are. And I don't know that they ever will be because ultimately they're concerned and understandably so about the bottom line and getting their business back up and running. So, you know, at the end of the day, they want to make sure that they can get back to normal and have a functioning business and whatnot. So it doesn't really matter to them if it comes from even usually a specific region of the world or who's behind it. Just that, hey, let's get that person out of our network or that group out of our network, make sure it never happens again and get everything back up to normal and let law enforcement worry about doing their thing on the on the attribution side. And there's some, you know, push and pull between law enforcement and private sector entities with sharing information and, you know, some reticence and hesitation on the side of the corporate world on passing stuff to law enforcement, because I think that they don't want to be named and shamed. They don't want that necessarily to come out in the public light. And so it's always kind of, you know, law enforcement has to work with consent. They have to have cooperation from organizations in order to gather that data back that they ultimately need to hold the person responsible. That just should be, I think, all encapsulated in one message. Private-public cooperation should be happening at a greater scale than it is, and it is necessary in many ways, right? Absolutely. And I was listening to your other guests, and um, the point was being made about communication on the adversary side. And a lot of times the adversaries are actually doing a better job of communicating with each other than we do internally on the good team. So that can be very frustrating. You know, they're learning from law enforcement. They're talking on forums. They're publishing law enforcement affidavits. They're understanding what mistakes got them caught and telling each other, hey, don't do this because here's the techniques that law enforcement is utilizing in order to catch us. And there's just not that level of synchronization between the government and the private sector 
on the side trying to keep them out of our networks. It's a very scary time now to live that reality where there's a greater commitment to cooperation and committing crime than there is in cooperation to defend against crime. That's weird to see the incentives balance so unevenly. Yeah. And I think some of the recent reporting requirements that are coming out will help some of that. I'm optimistic. I think, you know, a lot of it is liability too. So, you know, businesses, like if they feel like, hey, I I have a subpoena, then I can release the information to law enforcement without feeling like, hey, we're being held liable for turning over this information. And I think like mandatory reporting requirements and legislation that we've seen recently that I was privy to when I was with DHS will be coming more aggressively in the immediate future. And I think that that will help. And, you know, we're still in the infancy on a lot of this stuff. And the U.S. is usually out ahead of, you know, most other countries with these types of reporting requirements. Europe is usually very good, too, about it, but it's still early on. So they're still kind of figuring it out. But I know that there's a big push to get it figured out so that, you know, we can avoid like the next colonial pipeline or some, you know, major critical infrastructure type attack. Yeah, you're on the money there. That's where all eyes are headed. And finally, we'll be moving towards a future that's not a pound of cure. So this is my hope. Crossed fingers for that one. You touched on it a little bit, that state of cybercrime threat intelligence today. I was wondering, well, it seems that there's less cooperation here for public-private than there is among threat actor groups. That's one element of it. I have a macro and a micro question to follow. One... How would you describe the state of cybercrime today? And two, how has that evolved from when you first started your career? Sure. So that's actually a great question. It's evolved tremendously. And I think the number one evolution has been the specialization and the enterprise level coordination among cyber attackers. So in the early 2000s, even into the mid to late 2000s, you didn't see the level of coordination and cooperation amongst attackers. Generally, there was a lot of like freelancers, solo people. And then you'd have like, you know, loose knit kind of hacking crews like Shadow Crew and some of them that were out. But now really with the rise of ransomware, they operate like organized crime gangs to where, you know, everybody has a role whether it's initial access broker to help desk to devs to money mules to you know people at the top of the organization that are operating like a CEO or a COO through and through and so that level of specialization has really enabled them to focus on particular tasks and do them extremely well and then coordinate with each other in order to just like magnify and make the process extremely efficient. And that was kind of unheard of, you know, 15 years ago or so. And they really have it down to a science now. And it's kind of scary how synced up they are and how well they operate. It's like little miniature businesses, really. (laughs) Yeah, that sentiment is echoed among many. I wanted to mention this on previous podcasts and It was floating around in my head and I lost the thought. But now I remember because you're touching on what I believe is a common narrative, a common thread 
across many of the podcasts we've already done here at the Future of Cybercrime podcast. And that is the level of sophistication and coordination among cybercrime groups. What I was thinking of during those conversations was what happened in 2011, specifically fall 2011, where we had uh, hacktivist groups versus Mexican cartel group. So at that time, what was renowned was the Los Zetas, a Mexican drug trafficking organization versus Anonymous, a global hacking group. And what happened is that a member of Los Zetas kidnapped a member of Anonymous and there tumbled a great conflict. And, and, and to me, it was such an ironic one to study in 2011. At that time, I was in college and privy to it, not knowing as much as I do now, but thought to myself, wow, this is this is taking on another face. And what do we see today? We see a transition of groups like this, <laughs> two very odd groups uh, warring against each other, now building their forces and their networks on the web. So we could see that future happen, plus humans repeat their similar rhythmic stories throughout time. So that is coming together. What are we doing about it, though? What's the state of threat intelligence today in response? So, you know, threat intelligence serves a couple different purposes. One, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about a little bit about how law enforcement utilizes it and then probably a little bit on how organizations can use it. But one, you kind of have to know what the adversary is. And so having intelligence on kind of what the risks are and what the adversaries are doing to organizations such as the one that you know you're in or concerned about i think is useful so for example if you're in the financial sector or maybe you have payment card processors you can see hey what's fin7 been up to you know the financial seven criminal group and look at what attack vectors they're utilizing in order to breach networks. And then take a look at your own network and say like, hey, are we susceptible to these types of attacks? And if so, we probably need to harden our network. And then it kind of goes down by industry, right? So you can say, hey, I'm in a defense contractor or I'm in, you know, the health sector. Maybe I'm in the health sector and there's been a bunch of, you know, ransomware groups by, you know, Ryuk or Conti or whoever here's how they're getting in. So we really need to be cognizant of that and make sure that we're not susceptible to that. So I think there's kind of that proactive approach. And then at the same time, you know, there's active monitoring. So you can go out and see like, hey, do we have any credentials that belong to our organization that are out on, you know, the criminal underground or marketplaces or whatnot that are being sold? For us in law enforcement, really, we utilized it because you know, we look at kind of our targets and who we're looking at specifically on the attribution side. And we have a lot of data that we're dealing with. We seize a lot of data from criminals and then we have to process that data. And then once we process it, we compare it against, you know, OSINT and public facing data that's out there as well. So there's just so much data out there. So much stuff is being scraped. And to have a you know dedicated team or at least one person going through that data and seeing kind of how that impacts your organization, I think is is truly invaluable. And it's always people process technology. So having the right people doing it in a continuous manner with a methodology 
and with the right technology, all of it must play together. It's a very delicate balance on our end, isn't it? Isn't it funny how it's so easy to mess something up, to commit a crime than it is, to clean it up one, <laughs> and then also to defend against it? It's a, a very delicate balance on the defense part. So I, I hear from you that it's integral for us to share, collaborate, and have the right people watching out for the most important things. Absolutely. And the people part is the biggest equation of it. You know, we're not at a point where AI is able to replace a skilled uh, human yet and just the human intuition and being able to look at data points and pivot to the next logical data point, I think is a crucial skill. And even with analysts, I've seen like that's a skill that has to be developed really on what to know, what to look for with time. It, d- it doesn't necessarily come inherently. Some people are mm-hmm. are inherently better at it than others, but just having been in front of that type of data for a while, I think breeds that type of intuition to where, hey, I, I found this breadcrumb, it's leading to this trail, should I follow this trail or that trail? And that is a skill that really has to be developed. And, you know, like, I think a lot of organizations think like, hey, I can just buy like this fancy product with all the bells and whistles and flashing lights or whatever, and not hire people to be internally doing that network security monitoring. And I just don't think we're ever going to get to that point in the foreseeable future where you know, an appliance or a device is going to be able to replace a skilled human. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. So for those new entrants into the field, hey, for everyone in the field that's in cyber threat intelligence, what would you advise them to get to that level that you think is necessary for us to defend against cyber attacks and threats? Sure. So, I mean, the toughest part is that initial breakthrough. So breaking through into the field. And I taught a cyber threat intel workshop for Florida International University. So that was the number one question that students would ask me was like, hey, how do I get that first job? How do I break through into the field? And from doing a lot of interviews of candidates and particularly in entry-level positions, I would always say that hey, get as much hands-on experience as humanly possible. And it doesn't have to be necessarily at an employer or in in a job, in an occupation. But at least if you say, hey, I took a course and we did a project and we covered, you know, if somebody's asking like, hey, what's your experience with cyber incident response? If you say, hey, I don't have any, right? And you don't want to embellish your experience, but you could say like, hey, I haven't had the opportunity to do that in my professional life. However, I have, you know, gone online, I've gone to, you know, a site, I've done some digital forensic incident response capture the flag exercises, or I've downloaded these programs. And in my spare time, I've researched this, I've done some practical exercises or whatever. That's going to show the employer that you know, you're self-motivated and you're willing to learn and you're willing to go out there. And I think those types of candidates who are self-motivated are going to have an easier time getting their foot in the door than candidates who just don't have that their own 
kind of willingness to push themselves forward and explore the field because I think cyber security in general is is kind of a 24-7 field and you just have to constantly be learning and growing and evolving to stay at the forefront of it. So people have to really be bought into it. Hey, if you're, if you're getting into cybersecurity, what I mean by bought into it is you've got the passion, you've got the the work ethic to keep practicing and growing and being curious all throughout without failing that curiosity. I mean, you're saying that, Matt, a lot of other folks are saying that it's clear that you got to want to do it. It's it's no easy task, right? Yep, absolutely. It's nonstop. It really is. What's one piece of advice you'd have for organizations now to protect themselves against cybercrime and fraud? You've been on both sides of public-private like we spoke about, and I bet you've got a good number of recommendations. I'll take one, I'll take many even. <laughs> sure. So I always say, you know, to organizations to kind of take a look at what's important to your organization. So what data or what's your, you know, what are the crown jewels of your organization that if a hacker were to break in, what's most likely for them to steal? And then take a look at what are the safeguards surrounding that information? What do you currently have in place? How difficult do you think it would be for an attacker to get in and break into your network and steal that and take kind of that inside out approach? I think too much is focused on perimeter defense and kind of like hardening the gateways on the exterior portions of the network and not as much on kind of that soft cookie part of it. And, you know, I think it all boils down to it's a matter of if not when, right? So, and we've seen some prominent cybersecurity companies, some leaders get breached recently. I could think of several of them. Some are public and some are not. And I think that shows that anybody can be attacked. Anybody can be a victim. We have to get away from this. Like, I'm afraid to be publicly out as the victim because it can happen to anybody. And you have to have the mindset of we're going to be breached at some point. How quickly can we get that person out of our network? And I think if organizations approached it like that, their security policies would follow suit and they would be much more secure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's a vast difference between living in a culture of fear and then a culture of preparedness. Culture of fear, it's everywhere and nowhere at the same time leading with all of the most scattered approaches, culture of preparedness is what you're advocating for. Those two can get conflated in this world very easily. And I think it's about the messaging in cybersecurity. So I like how you're laying this out. Definitely stay prepared, stay vigilant, and accept the humility of this world that it will happen. That's a great message. And I really think that organizations benefit themselves from early disclosure and getting out in front of it. You know, if you, I think like the way that FireEye handled theirs was the best possible way you could do it is we're not going to hide anything. This happened. We're going to put a public, you know, press release out right away and we're going to address it. And we're going to say, Hey, this is what happened. We're going to let all our customers know, and we're going to work to fix it right away. I really like that approach. I wish more organizations would take that approach and be completely forthcoming. I think we'd be a lot better off in the long run. I agree. I hope all of our listeners agree with that as well. It's a very humble approach. 
but a very worthy one. And Matt, I want to ask you a ton more questions. Believe me, unfortunately, though, this is all the time we're going to have today together. But before we end here, where can our listeners keep up with you? Where's the best place to go? Sure. So LinkedIn, if you find me on LinkedIn, I'm uh, M.A. Swenson. So LinkedIn.com slash M.A. Swenson. But you'll see me on there, Matthew Swenson at IR Inc. All right, folks. There, you've heard it. LinkedIn is where you can find Matt. And Matt, I will definitely be keeping up with you. Thank you again for your time here today. It was a very interesting conversation and I really enjoyed it. I'm more than certain that others will as well. So thank you. No, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Well, take care all. Thanks for joining and listening in. And always feel free to send us some feedback. We'd love to hear it. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.